Hello again, friends, and you are my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Mid-South Wrestling Television Review Podcast. We will be reviewing the episode of Mid-South Wrestling hosted by Bill Watts that aired on January 1st, 1983. I have no idea when it was recorded. What am I, Brian Last? I'm not Brian Last. I'm John McAdam, and I'm sitting in for Brian Last today. Sitting in for Mike Mills is my longtime friend, Ricardo Coleman. Ricardo, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. And uh, I'm very happy to be back uh, with the Arcadian Vanguard Network. We're glad to have you on, man. And let me explain. Let me give you the rationale why Ricardo and I are recording this podcast. You see, Mid-South Wrestling is doing its 1982 in review. This aired the first day of January 1983. I remember where I I was that day. And you've already heard Brian and Mike's viewpoints on what aired on every episode in 1982. So we're going to give you a fresh perspective of what Ricardo and I thought of the end of 82 episode. Now, Ricardo is going to be particularly helpful to everyone here because he grew up in New Orleans watching Mid-South Wrestling. I remember something you told me back in the 90s, Ricardo, when mm-hmm. you know you and I like knew each other. We still know each other, but when we first met, mm-hmm. you said that when Mid-South Wrestling was on – it was like the Super Bowl was on. Like no one was in restaurants, no one was out in the mall. The streets were clear. Everyone was home watching Mid South Wrestling. I think it was four o'clock on Saturdays. Four o'clock on Saturdays, and then it went to five o'clock. And I'm telling you, nobody left the house um, for that one hour. It was it was eerie a lot of times. That's so. crazy. I mean, you know, a lot of people watch it up here, but it was something like we we watched WWF wrestling up here, but it was something like you didn't talk about in school. You know, it was like it was kind of, oh, my God, you watch that. No, you know, you didn't want that going on with your girls or anything. But I don't think it was like that down there. Everyone watched. Everyone talked about it. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, it really was a communal experience. And um, it was just something that people talked about around the water cooler. And if you didn't, well, I guess you were seen as uncool. Oh, wow. <laughs> See, that, that's the thing. You were uncool if you watched wrestling when I was in like junior high school and high school. But anyway, yeah. let's start yeah. with the opening segment of this. Uh, they do an, an introductory video or they show the introductory video they had of Kamala where he's supposedly out in a jungle somewhere, but he's staring at a camera very angrily. And the guy who was doing the audio for this, I, I mean, the first time I saw this, I think was in 1984, probably on that uh pro wrestling usa show the guys just look mm-hmm. you know kamala's like glaring at the camera and the guy's going kamala six foot eight tall, inches tall kamala the ugandan giant <laughs> he cracked me up i'm gonna ask you ricardo a very sensitive question you're a black guy growing up in new orleans when kamala mm-hmm. came up here in 1984 my black friends were pissed they thought the all of them. They thought the gimmick was offensive. Like, was it like, like that for you and your friends? I I don't think so. I think we looked more at. Uh, I mean, we we looked at it in the way that they wanted us to look at it. Um, you have to understand the South is a different place, and the way people think down here is a little bit different. Yeah. Up north, um, you know, the reaction to uh, those type of things would be a little bit more militant, so to speak. Um, I- it was but no, no, yeah. You know, we 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 reacted really with horror. <laughs> to be honest <laughs> with you, 
That's a good thing. It's, it's wrestling. You shouldn't take it too seriously. But we all did up here, That me and my friends. But anyway, the first match that they show on this broadcast was Andre the Giant, Neil Moscaros, and the Junkyard Dog against Killer Khan and his natural party buddies, Gino Hernandez and Tully Blanchard, from Houston. I know, Gino, <laughs> Gino and Killer Khan, they, they work together. But yeah. anyway... Yeah, I can see them hanging out right now. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Watts is smart. He made a big deal uh, about uh, Killer Khan being the guy who broke Andre the Giant's ankle. And they had that spot in the match. Um, Let me ask you, Killer Khan, was he he still a regular in Mid-South in 1982? Um, I would say the first part of 82 killer Khan was around a lot uh okay. i think he won the louisiana title and they really pushed it on television that he was the guy responsible for andre's injury and so uh it kind of um upped his status uh with a lot of fans down here okay because i know yeah. he was there i used to get mid-south on cable and he was on mid-south in like early 1980 with mr hattori as his manager he was a really big guy who could move around? I mean, what are your thoughts on Killer Khan? I thought he was pretty, uh, pretty good. Um, I did remember liking that knee drop he would he would do off the second rope. I mean, it looked really, really devastating when he would hit a guy. Um, he was he was a pretty imposing figure. And one thing I remember about him was this blood curdling scream he would he would uh, he would make when he would hit a guy. It was it was pretty 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 fearful. That, you know what? We didn't even set that up. I was about to mention that as part of what I feel is the brilliance of Bill Watts because Bill Watts once got on TV and he explained that the reason why Killer Khan would scream like that is because when he was trained as a wrestler, he was told to let out that scream because it would tighten his abdominal muscles and thus oh, he would yeah. have a harder stomach. I remember that. Um I, I can remember someone mentioning uh, something like that in, in relation to Bruce Lee. And the same reason why Bruce Lee would make the sounds that he would make. Um, so the, the body would tense up, and then when they would throw a blow, the blow would land harder. So Okay, that's probably where Bill Watts got it from. But, I mean, that totally mm-hmm. makes sense, especially if you're doing it in training. So one other exactly. thing I want to mention about this match, it was from Houston. Now, obviously, a lot's going on here because um, you've got Paul Bosch in Houston who has had problems with the NWA in the past. He has been using Nick Bockwinkle um, frequently as the world heavyweight champion along with Harley Race, but he had some problems with Harley Race and the general NWA office. And now he's in bed with Bill Watts. And Bill Watts is is on this particular TV program talking about how Houston Wrestling and Paul Bosch are now part of the Mid-South Wrestling Alliance. Not the National Wrestling Alliance, the Mid-South Wrestling Alliance. Um, And and obviously, you know, now Mid-South, the the Mid-South wrestlers are kind of new to the Houston market. And there's a, I I know there's got to be a reason why JYD was put in there with Andre and Moscaris. I mean, Andre, you know, one of the biggest names in the world, Neil Moscaris, a legend in Houston. And now you've got Junkyard Dog getting the rub from those guys. Do you see that? I do. Um, but I have one question for you. Didn't it seem like putting, uh, getting into that Houston market, did it almost seem like 
Watts was kind of um, uh, testing the waters for maybe a national promotion or a super regional promotion. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I think he definitely was. Um, he was doing things a little bit off the off the uh, grid, so to speak. Like he would get on TV, and this is part of 1982. I remember yeah. he got on. And he said something along the lines of, "Well, Bob Roop ran Paul Orndorff out of here, and Paul mm-hmm. Orndorff is now the champion on that cable channel. And uh, mm-hmm. I guess the quality of wrestling isn't too great over there." Oh, yeah. He was taking shots at Georgia, um, and which was strange because I think he owned a piece of the office. He but did. I, I really, yeah, I really think he was testing the waters, even that early. Maybe he saw something. Maybe he just saw an opportunity. But I think he wanted, he definitely wanted to expand um, past the, the um, two states and eventually the four or five states that he was in. I think maybe... He was looking at becoming another Vern Gagne, being in seven states and doing monthly shows. But you never know. Maybe he really wanted to go national and compete with Georgia. I believe I'm mean, Bill Watts, you know, for all the bad guys, bad things people can say about him. And, yeah, I'm sure he wasn't the greatest guy in the world, especially to work for Bill mm-hmm. Watts. As a wrestling promoter, to steal one from Ray Auerbach, he was playing chess while everyone else was playing checkers. And I'll right. give you an example. As soon as, supposedly, as soon as Bill Watts saw WrestleMania three in 1987, he saw that it drew 90 or 70, whatever thousand, and that it grossed seven, 17 million. He's like, that's it. I'm out. He he was going to fold the promotion, but instead he got, well, he got some of $4 million from Jim Crockett. And, but had he not been able to sell it, he was going to close it because he wasn't a a mark for the wrestling business. He didn't grow up watching wrestling. Um, According to Watts himself, one day he ran to Wahoo McDaniel, who was cashing a check for $5,000 for one match. And he said, wow, I'm getting in the wrestling business too. And the rest was history. Well, uh, to piggyback on what you just said, according to Jim Ross, I think he recently uh, did an interview when he was talking about the meeting that was held by the um, struggling promoters. Uh, they were trying to find, formulate a plan to fight Vince. And the, after they had the meeting, Watts apparently read the tea leaves and he said, the only reason why we're going to this meeting, we're not going to really learn anything except if there's some talent that we could possibly sign. So he already he already knew that the meeting uh, that nothing was going to come of it, and so he was thinking about improving his own promotion. So he was a really really smart guy. Um, just like you said, no matter what you think about him on a personal level, he was a businessman all the way. He was. He was not at all seduced by the wrestling business like a lot of people are. He was like an outsider figuring out a way to make money in this, and he did a really good job of it. Out of all of the territories from the mid-70s, early 80s, mid-80s, I mean, Mid-South, I think definitely was the best. I think you'll get no arguments out of me. Yeah, of course not. I mean, (laughs) the only defense I have for like being a WWF fan in the late seventies, early eighties, et cetera, was hey, it's what I grew up on. Like you, you got to grow up on the best. It absolutely spoiled me. (laughs) There's a good side to it, and there's a bad side because growing up watching Mid South, you got spoiled, and nothing that came after 
came close to it. Maybe the NWA, but other than that, nothing really came close to it. No, it had that that realism, that intensity. I absolutely loved it, and I, I mean, even JCP just didn't have that that full on. I don't know. It, 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 Bill Watts did everything he could to make it seem like a real sport, and for that one hour a week, I bet you just it just suspended your disbelief. JCP came close, but the, you know, sometimes you, you you know you eat a good meal. And then you go and eat the same meal, and it's just never as good as it was the first time. And Nothing ever is. Yeah, it's the same feeling you got when you watch these uh, JCP. It's like, God, if they had only done one thing, and it would have been just like it used to be, but never quite got there for me. No, and then of course, like sometime ninety ninety one, they uh, JCP went in the WWF's direction, and they totally sucked after that. But anyway, um, right. next. Uh, yeah, next up uh, was a match between Mil Mascaras and Gino Hernandez, once again from Houston. And it was a little bit weird because Gino Hernandez was not getting getting pushed heavily by Mid-South, more on Hernandez later. And Mil Mascaras was kind of a legend in Houston. And yet Mil Mascaras, it wasn't a clean job, but he does a job for, for Gino Hernandez in Houston. Um, any thoughts on, on that, Rico? Well, uh, Gino... You could look at Gino and see that he was he was a star. You know, I always look at um, anybody in any entertainment industry, and you can see a personal charisma. Gino had it in spades. Mm-hmm. You know, Masquerus, on the other hand, uh, kind of he kind of looked like a you know like a superhero or whatnot, and he was always portrayed as a as a superhero. But what was cool about this match was that Gino was able to to, to get a win over him and. You know, I don't know if you've seen a whole lot of Gino uh, in Mid South, but um, he was doing some jobs. He was he seemed to be doing a lot of jobs at that time, um, yeah. especially on Mid South TV. <laughs> so yeah, well, it was a big win for him. I mean, that's the thing. Like, if you were working for Watts, you were doing jobs. Dusty Rhodes did jobs when he was in Mid South Wrestling, which he you know he wouldn't even do in his own territory. But anyway, it was it was a big surprise when I first saw this because you know Moscaris was legendary for you know no yob and sometimes right. he's in Madison Square Garden. He wouldn't even give Billy Superstar Billy Graham offense when you know wrestling in Madison Square Garden for the for the WWF Championship. So for me, this was a big surprise. It was it was a, it was, it was a big surprise, and and I think, um, well. You can edit that point out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, hey, and the, the thing, the other part of it, too, is the cameras were rolling. So Mil Mascaras knew and he, at the time that someone's going to see this. And, well, now everyone that has WWE Network has a chance to see it. Well, Mil, Mil had some surprising losses. I mean, uh, I'm still wondering if they haven't found out that if it's really him in Memphis when he did the stretcher job. Um, and I <laughs> we'll certainly don't think that was so. Yeah. 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 My, my money but, is on no way that was really Mil Mascaras. <laughs> well, uh, I kind of hope one day the mystery is solved, but there's no mystery in this case. He did the job to Gina Hernandez. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, and once it was not a clean job, um, the referee got knocked out, and suddenly this goofy-looking fan, we think, comes into the ring, counts three, you know, goes to raise Moscaris's hand, and then he, t- he knocks Mil Moscaris out with a loaded fist, and then the uh, the guy's cap and wig comes off, and it's Tully Blanchard, and suddenly Gino <laughs> Hernandez wakes up, and he pins Mil Moscaris in the ref after the ref comes to. It was kind of a clumsy finish, but Moscaris, Moscaris, yeah, lost on a pinfall. Wow. Priceless. Right. Now, speaking of priceless, the next thing that comes up was the television from October 27th. This is Bill Watts at his zenith. They are having a match. Um, it is Junkyard Dog and Mr. Olympia against what's supposed to be Ted DiBiase and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Well, before the show starts, they are out in the crowd with a bunch of kids who came in for the Louisiana State Fair. And it's a very festive atmosphere. And, oh, boy, they've got a guy in a gorilla suit and everything. And, you know, it's a big party. But then Watts announces he got a call from Ted DiBiase that morning saying that Hacksaw Duggan had been detained. And I think we all know Uh what that means. What's meant jail? What's meant jail? (laughs) Born with the warden. And mm-hmm. yeah, even Watts is, is saying basically that, you know, Duggan has a reputation of turning bars into uh, parking lots. And DiBiase on this phone call says that he is flying in Matt Bourne from Atlanta. And Watts is all suspicious. He's like, you know, Ted DiBiase is the kind of guy he'll sacrifice Matt Bourne, who doesn't even wrestle here. And, you know, basically DiBiase now has nothing to lose. Well, the match starts. Mm-hmm. And, of course, after a ref bump, the gorilla mm-hmm. turns out to be Hacksaw Jim Duggan. And and it's just the way the details, the way Watts parceled things out. Like, there's a reason a guy's here in a gorilla suit. It makes total sense. Even Tony Atlas got a balloon from the gorilla earlier in the day. <laughs> Your thoughts on this, Ricardo? First of all, uh, Watts set the scene perfectly. I mean, this episode... The entire episode had everything. It was mystery, intrigue. Uh, 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 it, I mean, you had a, it. It was just a sense of drama and danger in the air. And um, the one thing that I do remember from this match, and it may be odd, at the point where the ref bump happened, and there, if you notice, there's this kid on the other side of the ring, and he's complete. He's completely into the match, and he's losing his mind. He's following everything that that happens. And then you see the crowd when Duggan comes in and it's as if everybody knows they know what's about to happen. And so when it does, the air is let out of the room. And I tell you at home, uh, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. You know, I, I, you would think that me and Ricardo talked for hours right before this, and we didn't. I have on my notes, the <laughs> here's exactly what it said. Crowd mm-hmm. went silent gorilla. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and one thing I noticed, I mean, I love the Mid-South crowds. They're all jumping up and down. The place is crazy. And when this match happened, first of all, I loved the finish. It was um, it was uh, DiBiase pinning Mr. Olympia after Matt Bourne did the bombs away on him. And mm-hmm. Matt Bourne, I thought this was just a cool little 
I don't know, just a, a little detail. Matt Bourne, mm. JYD is trying to break it up, and Matt Bourne is desperately holding his foot, and he, he just manages to get the whole dog long enough for the pinfall to mm. take place. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was, it was masterful. Everybody had their working shoes on. Absolutely. And one thing I noticed, we're talking about the crowd. I would be afraid to be I've, I've said this for years i would be afraid to cheer for the heels in in new orleans i mean it, w- it would, would i would i be right to be afraid you were taking a chance on your life i mean <laughs> those people believe every and, and i keep saying those people and i hate to separate myself because i was right there along with them but we believed i would say 90 percent of what we saw and so when the bad guys would do something i mean we took it personal because it, Especially Dog. Dog was a member of the family. So what happens when you see a member of the family getting hurt or get screwed over? I mean, there is that legendary story where they were doing an angle uh, when Junkyard Dog was blinded. JYD is in the ring, or I think he was outside the ring, and the Freebirds are coming out. Now, JYD, you know, he's he's got white tape over his eyes he's blind and the free birds come out and there's a guy in the audience who has a gun and he says don't worry dog i got your back that's exactly i believe that happened uh in downtown new orleans uh i believe i think you're right i mean you would know either downtown new orleans right either downtown new orleans and st bernard well it was it probably was in st bernard and well we can get into that subject later, or maybe at another time. But um, <laughs> a lot of times we didn't make the shows at St. Bernard. Um, um, but Dick Murdoch liked going to St. Bernard for <clears throat> certain reasons. But anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, if it happened at St. Bernard, uh, yeah, I can see a guy coming out of the crowd with a gun. Oh man! Now I, I bring up the, the way crowd. they roll. I bring up the crowd on the TV taping for one reason: when when finally the referee counts three. In the front row, on the right, on your screen, are two very brave young ladies who started jumping up and down cheering for Ted DiBiase. I would not I have wanted to be standing anywhere near those two. Well, the crowds were a little bit more uh, subdued and somewhat respectful at the uh, at the TV tapings. But had that been in an arena, uh, yeah, that would have needed security. Security, yeah, it would have been bad for them. Girlfriend, <laughs> but you're I know it's bad as well. Right, right. <laughs> All right. What do we what do we have <laughs> next? So okay. So JYD has clearly been screwed, and he has to leave Mid South Wrestling for ninety days. Well, I believe it was the next week or the week after. Uh, Ted DiBiase is in the ring waiting for his opponent S. Lee, and this scrawny. I, I think it was one of the referees. Scrawny guy comes into the ring. And with a banner, and he asked the referee to open, help him open up the banner, and it says S. Lee is Staggerly, and Ted DiBiase starts laughing uncontrollably. Uh, the original broadcast had Lloyd, Price, Lloyd Price's uh, Staggerly start playing, DiBiase mm-hmm. looking scared and confused while this giant masked man who looks just like Junkyard Dog if you put him under a mask comes to the mm-hmm. ring. And wipes the floor with DiBiase. It was an unbelievable reaction in the crowd. The people lost their minds, and I could tell you it was pretty much the same at home. Um, the, the the drama and and the disappointment of the previous show 
was replaced by just the joy of having him back. And we all know who he was. I mean, that was the whole point of it. But uh, the referee was Pee Wee Anderson. Okay, that's uh, who that was. That's yeah, who was a yeah, who was a friend of Arn Anderson. He grew up with Arn Anderson, and he was a friend of JYD. He uh, <clears throat> was a gopher for uh, JYD. Um, and so I think that was, if I'm not mistaken, that might have been uh, Pee Wee's first appearance on the show. Uh, it might have been. This is right around the time Arn Anderson uh, started showing up under his real name, Marty Lundy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but as, as far as the reaction to, to Stagger Lee and the way he wipes out DiBiase, I mean, man, it was it was just fantastic. That is the way you introduce uh, a, a character. Here's the thing. Bill Watts knew how to make something like that work. Um, it was like JYD had been unfairly screwed. And instead of leaving Mid-South for 90 days, he was going to stay in Mid-South and give Ted DiBiase and Duggan and Bourne what they had coming. And it was the kind of thing like what JYD was doing, I think, in the minds of a lot of people, it wasn't wrong because he should not have been evicted from Mid-South Wrestling for 90 days. That's what a lot of these good guy comes back under a mask angles. That's where they fail. Like, remember when they did Yellow Dog in WCW in 1991? Yeah. Yeah. Brian Pillman had no reason to complain that he had to leave. He lost fair and square, yet he came back under that mask. And by the way, that to me, that was Dusty Rhodes intentionally trying to make Brian Pillman look bad. Why would he do that? Because who does Dusty want to get over as the good looking young baby face? I don't know. Maybe Dustin Rhodes. Exactly. And it, I mean, you, you give Brian Pillman Barry Windham's old uh, gimmick, uh, you know, yeah. it was in Florida, so most of us didn't see it, but it was it was just pretty recycled. But to go back to the entire context of what JYD did or what Watts did, you think about the history of JYD in Mid-South up until that point. He got blinded. He was cheated out of seeing his kid being born. Mm-hmm. He he. He got cheated, uh, you know, just about every match. He has to fight these rough and tough guys and try to cheat him every week. And then his best friend turns on him. Mm-hmm. And then that same best friend and his Can buddy. Can I interject for a second? JYD yeah, in real life was Ted DiBiase's best man at his wedding. And they, they, they publicized this. So That was, so, that was a shoot. So he, so yeah, JYD gets turned on after he's the best man at this guy's wedding. But go ahead, Rico. Exactly. So think about the context. This guy is getting screwed over and over and over again. And here it is. He has to leave Mid-South for 90 days. So now he's had enough. And so Stagger Lee is the symbol, uh, is going to be the vessel for all the frustration that this guy's uh been going through for two, two and a half years. And that's why they always presented Stagger Lee as, I guess, like JYD's dark side. Much like Uvalde Slim was Dusty Rhodes' dark side. And right around the hey. same time, they were doing the Midnight Rider, who was also Dusty Rhodes' dark side. We were talking. Yeah. We talked about the blinding angle. I got to tell this story for those who haven't heard it. Ricardo, I bet, I bet you heard this story. But after oh, they, yeah. did, they did the blinding angle, JYD drives down to the Mid-South office 
And Bill Watts loses his mind. He's like, dog, if people see you driving a car, you're going to kill the territory. So here's what's happened. Here's how it happens. You know how hot it is in Louisiana, right? This is like June, July, and you've got that that Louisiana heat humidity. And Watts tells Dog to get in Grizzly Smith's trunk, and Grizzly Smith was going to drive him home in the trunk, and he did. And Junkyard Dog mm. supposedly was like, oh, my God, this is not how I want to die. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that story before. I can't even imagine being in the trunk in July anywhere <laughs> in the state of Louisiana. I was in that trunk once in New Hampshire in July, and I thought I was going to die. But anyway, um, yeah, and people were were sending Junkyard Dog money with notes that said, you know, hey, I know how hard it is. You can't work. It's $5. It's not much, but it's all I can give you right now. He was getting letter after letter like this. I mean, it's not a bad gig if you can get it. Yeah, really. But I mean, that's how, once again, that's how seriously people took uh, wrestling down there. And it was great. It really was. I mean, uh, I think I said on, on uh, 605 um, Super Podcast, it was remarkable that a guy who would probably not be liked by a majority of the population, a, I mean, he was beloved. He was a member of the family. And to think for you to part with your money, uh, to, to help somebody out uh, when they're having hard times. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. It is remarkable. It's someone you've never met. It's someone you know that, that this person has never met before. And, and like I said, he, his mailbox supposedly was full every day. But anyway, uh, and by the way, one other thing about the DiBiase uh, Stagger Lee match, excuse me. If anyone wants to talk about like Ted DiBiase not being one of the greatest wrestlers of all time because a lot of his best matches just are not available on videotape, watch him sell for Stagger Lee during this segment. I mean, he is like a pinball and DiBiase was legit 6'3 and legit 250 pounds and that guy was just flying around man he was an all-time great I think people forget how how big of a man DiBiase was I think I I even sort of took it for granted but when you look at him compared to a lot of the guys he had to wrestle DiBiase was a big dude he was he was he wasn't like you know a big blown up steroid guy but he was you know like I said, 6'3", he was thick. I mean, he used to play tight end at West Texas State, so he, he's got athleticism. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And it was textbook, the way he was selling. Textbook. Yeah, he, uh, like I said, I mean, I, I've had people tell me, you know, oh, what were, what were his greatest matches? Hey, they're just not available on videotape. Next, we go to Hacksaw Jim Duggan coming out, and this I, I didn't really get this the, the entirety of this angle. Hacksaw, Tony Atlas is doing an interview, and Hacksaw Jim Duggan comes out, and he's like, yeah, you're a big, strong guy, but I'm a big, strong guy, too. Watch me do 20 push-ups. <laughs> 20 push-ups is a yeah. warm-up, dude. <laughs> Not even 20. <laughs> That's like 50 push-ups as a warm-up. But anyway, I mean, of course, <laughs> it comes down to arm wrestling and test of strength. And Atlas winds up throwing Hacksaw Jim Duggan around. Um, by this point, Ricardo, did did you start getting the sense that Hacksaw Duggan was going to turn babyface very soon? That, I'm going to tell you. I think, if, I think this particular angle was where we knew that Duggan was somebody and um he, he looked like a star but this is where he really started to step out front 
and yes. people really started taking him seriously as a as a as a threat. Um, I don't know if we saw him as a baby face, but I think, well, I guess we did. I guess people really started to like him at that point. So, I mean, it's hard for me to say if I would have picked up on it back then. But I know, like, if I had never seen that episode before, I would have been like, wait a minute, this guy's turning babyface. And if you think about it, yeah, Steve Williams was the ultimate guy that Bill Watts would want to push. I mean, you know, an offensive guard from Oklahoma, of course, you know, Williams is getting pushed to the moon. But if it wasn't for Williams, I mean, Duggan, it was, it was Duggan that was the ultimate Bill Watts guy. I mean, a legitimate tough dude, you know, played – played football at SMU and is a legitimate athlete. Uh, Dr. Death um, kind of had to kind of um, grow on me. Um, but after a while, because uh, he was he was pretty clumsy when he got into the business, right? A lot and of people forget when, that. Yeah, he was really clumsy. And, you know, he just looked like a guy that, um, you know, just didn't get it. But as time went on, you could it was clear to see the improvement. He started to improve his body. He looked more comfortable in the ring. He started to move more fluid. And it was, it was again, I hate to use this word again, but it was pretty remarkable, the, the progress that he made in, I guess, like a two-year period. I agree 100%. People act like Steve Williams came out of the box and was instantly a good wrestler. Like, uh, 82, oh. 83, the guy stunk. And I, I'm almost <laughs> positive that Bill Watts put him with Ted DiBiase for a reason, the same reason they put Virgil with Ted DiBiase, because you're going to learn from the best. Well, it worked out better with Steve Williams, but uh, okay, one out of two ain't bad. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. Doc obviously went on to become a superstar, and well, Virgil kind of didn't, but not to get off track, but they they did Mm -hmm. put him, Virgil, with Ted DiBiase, hoping that someday he was going to get a huge baby face push, which never happened. But anyway, we have an angle going on where Mr. Wrestling 2 is having his – someone is sneaking into Mr. Wrestling 2's dressing room and defacing his masks. Um, and what they showed on this episode, of course, we later found out that it was Mr. Olympia, but at this point we didn't know. And Mr. Two, Mr. Wrestling 2 gets in the ring to confront Skandor Akbar. Now, I am not a big Skandor Akbar fan. I know a lot of people are, and that's fine. Wow. I never got the guy. But Akbar did a really good job acting because Mr. Wrestling 2 came out and said, hey, you're responsible for this. And Akbar came across like a guy like, what? What are you talking about? Not in a heelish manner, but as mm-hmm. a, hey, I didn't do it way. Did you remember this? I do. It was almost uh... – a quote-unquote real moment. It was almost like, hey, I'm not Skandor Akbar, the evil manager. I'm, you know, yes. Skandor Akbar, just the guy. <laughs> <laughs> excellent You're a excellent co-worker. way to put that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, okay, maybe he is a bad guy, but he didn't do this. And, of course, uh, Two's not hearing it. He beats up Akbar. Kamala comes out and winds up destroying Mr. Wrestling 2. Uh, another good angle. But like I said, we eventually found out that it was Mr. Olympia. And by the time we were doing this, by the time we got there, like when I saw it, I'm like, okay, is Mr. Wrestling 2 like losing his mind and pointing fingers in the wrong direction? Because Mr. Olympia is a good guy. But obviously it was Mr. Olympia all along. But anyway. We then we almost come... thought. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. We almost no, thought no, that. Go ahead, we... man. I, I want to hear what you have to well, say. Well, we almost thought that too was, 
getting ready to turn bad guy almost. Um, just because, and we understood the reaction that, you know, you would have if somebody was messing with your stuff, but he was over the top with it. Yeah. And so, yeah, we didn't know where it was going, but it was good. <laughs> it definitely was. You know, in this episode, I, I thought it was a little bit odd because Mr. Wrestling 2 seemed to be getting this giant push. And we all, you had to know he was near the end of his career at this point. I think he was like 50 or around there at this point. And Watts was almost pushing him. And I, wouldn't, I would say the number two baby face behind Junkyard Dog. Yes. Yeah. At that point, you can clearly see it um, when you went to the arenas. Uh, he definitely was. Um, you, you know, I wouldn't say one and one and one A, but he was definitely a solid number two. Okay, it looked that way to me. But we all know what happened with Mister Wrestling Two. Eventually, in Mid South, how he got into the feud with Magnum TA in early 1984. Next up, we have another loser leave town match. It's Ted DiBiase and Matt Bourne against Stagger Lee and Mister Olympia. And at this point, Mr. Olympia gets eliminated. He's out of Mid-South. Now, I, maybe you remember this, Ricardo. I do not. Why is Stagger Lee in a loser-leave town match? I mean, it, it didn't do much good when Junkyard Dog left, right? Right. I mean, did they, did they explain it? Do you remember it? I, I, don't, I don't know if they explained it. I think um, – I, 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 I do find it odd because essentially what they wanted to do was get that mask off of him and have him be gone for a year. Mm-hmm. So to have him, so to have him in a loser leave town match for sixty days, it didn't make much sense. But I think the focus was more on, I don't know. I think the focus was more on uh, the possibility of getting rid of DBIC or, or or born for sixty days um, rather than uh, JYD, but. It worked anyway. It worked. It worked. You know, obviously, Junkyard Dog loses a Loser Leaf Town match, and he comes back under a mask. I'm thinking Mr. Olympia loses. He should come back without the mask, as Jerry Stubbs. And then the heel should come out and say, no, you're Mr. Olympia. And instead of trying to unmask him, you're trying to put the mask on him to prove that he's Mr. Olympia. That would have been brilliant, but I don't know. Well, it, it might have gotten Jerry Stubbs over, but think about it. I mean, once he took that mask off, he looked like the, the, the dad from Family Ties. So, was <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, but you know, I think they almost played with that angle in uh, Southeast. I mean, that's a story for another day, but it's pretty interesting. Pretty interesting scenario you laid out. <laughs> I was actually suggesting it in jest, but I mean, really, Mr. Olympia, Jerry Stubbs, he was a talented guy. But as you mentioned, I mean, he just did not have physical charisma. He had that face that just, you know, didn't he didn't have a charismatic face. What can I say? No, he he just looked like a nice guy down at the Home Depot. All right. Nothing wrong with Home Depot. (laughs) <laughs> Mr. Wrestling 2 against Tully Blanchard uh, from Houston. And once again, you know, I'm at this point, I'm feeling like this is no longer a year in review show. It's just Bill Watts rolling out matches. But we've got he this is this is at like the 25, 30 minute point. But we had the, the two versus Tully match. Ricardo, how do you think? I mean, I know Tully did wrestle in Mid-South infrequently. But what do you think would have happened mm-hmm. if they had pushed him? I think Tully would have got over. 
uh, Tully, honestly, Tully would have gotten over if they had given him time. Um, if they had pushed him on TV a little bit, built him up slowly, uh, let him do some heelish things, um, definitely put him in some long matches on TV, Tully would have got over. Um, I think this is the match where uh, he tries to grab Two's mask and Two goes nuts on him and just basically yes. beats the crap out of him. Was a, if they were if they were going to push him, uh, the push absolutely stopped in this match because he beat the crap out. I mean, he guzzled Tully, and um, I remember watching him at the time, thinking, "Man, like this is, this is beyond." I almost wonder if Tully had done something to offend Johnny Walker. <laughs> Tully, no, that's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is the first time, if I had been watching this in real time, I would have said, wow, you know, this Tully Blanchard guy is is incredibly talented. I mean, I saw him in Southwest, and I talked about this recently, but Tully always looked to me before he came to the NWA, like he was always going to be either a big fish in a small pond like San Antonio or a small fish in a big pond like Mid-South, and he, Obviously, Dusty saw things differently, and then Tully was great as one of the lead heels in the NWA. Well, Tully was able to to latch on, much like Dusty would latch on to a really popular act. I think Tully was very, very smart in convincing Dusty that he could be the perfect opponent. And if you notice, he kept going back to Tully over (laughs) and over again because Tully knew how to to showcase Dusty uh, in the best possible light. And um, I think Tully, Tully was a pretty smart guy, so I think he would have gotten over anywhere. You know, you're you're right at that he was a smart guy, and you're right that Dusty kind of latched on to him. And like, how do I put this? Like, Tully knew how to make Dusty look like Superman, and Tully also yeah. knew it, Tully knew it was smart to make the Booker look like Superman. Exactly, and a lot of guys don't get that. You know, the ego gets in the way, and. <laughs> You know, it gets in the way of making money, and hey, kudos to Tully. Next up on the episode, we have a match from Houston where Stagger Lee, Tony Atlas, and Chavo Guerrero faced off against Ted DiBiase, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, and Matt Bourne. Uh, Chavo gets knocked out. It was a two out of three fall match. Chavo got knocked out after the first fall. Mr. Wrestling 2 took over for him. Now, what made this match interesting and noteworthy is that they did a thing where Ted DiBiase unmasks Stagger Lee as Junkyard Dog. But, oh no, the Mid-South television production crew had problems, had unexpected difficulties, and they were not able to record that part of the match. Rico, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I'm, I, well, from the perspective of a guy who watched it years ago, it was funny to see back at that time, but it kind of, um, it, I didn't like the, I, I didn't like a promotion doing something like that. Um, because it made them a party to, uh, to what JYD was doing. Uh, I mean, that's just my opinion, but, um, well, two things I can take from this match. One, it extended, uh, cause I think it was Gino that did the run in. On uh, yes, it Chavo. Was. yes, it was. So it so it extended the feud between Gino and uh, and uh, Chavo, which which had been pretty hot, and it it's further um, 
they furthered the push that, that uh, Wrestling 2 was getting by putting him in the same uh, circle as uh, Atlas and uh, uh, Stagger Lee. Yeah, I agree with that. And you know what? I agree with you, too, with, that I did not like the idea that Mid-South was a party to it, even though Bill Watts, with a completely straight face, you know, during this episode, explains that we had technical difficulties with the, with the truck. And it's kind of like, mm-hmm. I don't know if I believe it or not, but it, it's not like automatically you disbelieve it. But that's one thing I always liked about Mid-South, like the promotion itself did not take sides. And when even a babyface, if a, a babyface was doing commentary, they would say, hey, you know, you can't go out there and interfere. You can't just, you know, cheerlead your guy. You you have to sit there and, and do commentary. Well, it was a $2,500 fine. And uh, we, if I'm not mistaken, the babyfaces were, were fined more than the heels. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was like so. the heels knew better. Uh, it was like the heels, you know, oh, I'll do this, but I'm not, I don't want to have to pay a fine. Whereas the baby faces, you know, they just lose their temper and have to, they have to pay the fine. They just couldn't deal with the injustice that we saw in the rings in mid South. So, hey, $2,500, it was worth it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that, that kind of ends the episode. But since I have Ricardo here, I want to talk a, a, a little bit about a couple of things that happened in 1982 in Mid-South that was not covered in the program. And I, I think it should have been. The year started off with the he, the lead heels being Paul Orndorff, Bob Orton Jr., and Bob Roop. And you know, as heel runs go, these guys are all long gone. And who do they replace Paul Orndorff with as the top heel, the last guy you'd expect, Ted DiBiase. Yes. And, and uh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say it was one of the most brilliantly executed turns I've ever seen. Ted DiBiase uh, gets cheated out of the North American title by Bob Roop, who won't give him a rematch. DiBiase gets on TV and explains that, you know, if Roop won't give him a title match, here's what he'll offer Roop. If DiBiase loses, he'll leave Mid-South. So they ha- – oh, and by the way, Ted has a hand injury, and he <laughs> he's wearing this black glove because he has to wear tape over the hand, and during the match, the, the he gets sweaty, and the tape comes off, and he needs the glove to keep the tape on. Right, Ricardo? Right. Wink, <laughs> wink. But it, made, but it made perfect sense. You know, we believe everything we heard. <laughs> And Ted, during this interview, he's not coming across as heelish, but he's coming across as frustrated, and that plants the seed. Now, here's the brilliance of it. They they agree, Bob Roop versus Ted DiBiase, no DQ on TV next week. If Ted loses, he has to leave. Well, just to make things a little more realistic, and I, I love this about Mid-South, during that week – Junkyard Dog defeats Bob Roop for the North American title, and now Junkyard Dog has to wrestle his best friend on TV in a no-DQ match. Ricardo, you were there. What were your thoughts coming into this match? Well, first of all, when you were setting up, I'm thinking a plot thickens, right? Mm -hmm. So it was a situation where somebody had to win and somebody had to lose, and um, if DiBiase lost, we'd be losing, you know, a guy that we really like. If Dog would have lost, he would have lost the North American title that he had been chasing for the better part of, I guess, two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And so it really, it really, um, 
the fans were really, really torn um, because we didn't know. We just hoped that it would be a good, clean match, but we we had the feeling that something bad was going to happen. And sure enough, it did. Um, the the uh, heel turn, the tension just kept rising. And it wasn't a long match, but when it happened, it, it was mm, it, it was just it just created a really, really um, visceral reaction. Um, especially when he grabbed the belt and he left the ring. Yeah. Um, and to, to top it off, Bob Roop was doing commentary. Bob Roop was involved in feuds with both DiBiase and JYD at this time. And Bob Roop, you know, he, he was never, I thought Bob kind of lacked charisma. He wasn't a great worker, but he was at his best here because he was doing commentary. And when it happened, Roop was like, DiBiase loaded up that glove and knocked out Junkyard Dog. No one can knock out Junkyard Dog with one punch. And then Roop goes, that's what he had planned for me. Yeah, I, I can. And um, those words are the uh, are the words that stick with you because it's like, so we've been hating Bob Roop now for the better part of seven, maybe eight months. And he's been saying that this guy, DiBiase, something about him. He's no good. He's no good. He's no good. Yes. And so it made you feel like, were we wrong? Were we wrong? Does this guy really know? And we were the ones that were fooled. We were the ones that, that was, uh, it kind of made the fans feel kind of, um, stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's one, one way to look at, but you're right. I do remember that foreshadowing by Roop saying, you know, Ted DiBiase is not what you, what you people think he is. And as far as I know, DiBiase had never been a heel before. No, not that I, not to my knowledge. Um, so this was his, um, this was his big break. And, and, and I mean, he's told the story that it was actually his idea to, to turn heel. And so he was committed to it. And as, as the weeks went on, you saw that level of commitment. I mean, that character was as amoral as any other character in wrestling at that time. Ted DiBiase tells the story of Ernie Ladd knows he was finishing up Paul Orndorff and Ladd was asking around, you know, who can we bring in as a lead heel? Who can it be? And DiBiase lets it spin around in his head for a couple of days. And then he approaches Ernie Ladd, who was the booker, and says, you know, Ernie, I know who your, your, who your guy for your next heel should be. And Ernie's like, who? And Ted DiBiase points at himself. He says, me. Think about it. Who else could have uh, popped the territory the, the way that DiBiase did? I mean, who else could have possibly gone into that spot and had uh, people have such a, a, a visceral, again, using that, that term, a visceral reaction to uh, DiBiase loading that glove and knocking out JYD? I don't think anybody. No. I mean, he was DiBiase. Just a perfect guy. Yeah, he had been there. I think he was there 78, 79. Then he came back at the end of 79, and he was just, you know, a, a white bread baby face, a really good one. But, you know, up until that point, there was nothing about Ted DiBiase that would make you think that he was capable of doing that. No, DiBiase had actually been there since about 75, 76. I mean, oh, wow. the people, yeah, I mean, the people in this area had grown up and watched DiBiase develop from a young pup to a North American champion. And so when he turned, I mean, all those people that loved Ted DiBiase, he was the all American boy. 
from Omaha, from Omaha, Nebraska. And so when he turned, it was, I mean, that really meant something. Yeah. And I remember the next week he was wrestling, I believe it was Tom Jones and he knocked out Tom Jones with the loaded glove and, you know, pinned him. And then DiBiase just gets up and he has this smirk on his face and Bill Watts just went crazy. He was, I, I was trying to remember exactly what Bill Watts said. He's all, oh, look at the smirk. Look at the defiance on Ted DiBiase. Oh yeah. He does. He does such a masterful job of, uh, just getting over the fact that DiBiase is fully embracing evil. <laughs> exactly. You know, ask me, you could have asked me this 10 years ago. I, I'm not just saying this because I'm on the Mid-South Wrestling 19, you know, 1982 Year in Review podcast. Ted DiBiase was the best heel I have ever seen. And, and this is the Mid-South version of Ted DiBiase who he didn't care. I mean, he would take, if you were standing between him and whatever he wanted, he was going to take you out and he wasn't going to care about it. It would be like me swatting a mosquito off of my arm. I think that's a very appropriate response. I think that's pretty close to, um, well, I, I, I think you hit the nail right on the head. I think that's the character of Teddy DiBiase, King Rat. I mean, he was he was like the Michael Corleone of wrestling. It was just business to him. Oh, you can't walk anymore. Well, too bad. You got in, you got in my way. <laughs> but anyway, um, I really hope everyone has enjoyed uh, the two pinch hitters coming in and and doing this episode. Ricardo, is there anything that uh, you would like to plug? Uh, just my uh, Twitter handle, Magava nineteen fourteen at uh, gmail.com. Just uh, give me a holler on Twitter anytime. All right. If you liked this show, I, John McAdam, have an Arcadian Vanguard podcast called Stick to Wrestling. It's uh, me and Sean Goodwin once a week. It's 60 minutes long every every week. Uh, give us 60 minutes. We'll give you a wicked good podcast. Um, that's pretty much it. Next week, you definitely want to listen to Brian and Mike when they return because they're going to talk about the January 8th, 1983 episode of Mid-South Wrestling, which has one of my favorite matches of all time. And I don't know if you remember this one, Ricardo. It's Gino Hernandez against Mr. Wrestling 2 with Bill Watts doing commentary. And he took a good three, four, maybe even five minutes to sit there and bitch about the Oklahoma football su- su- uh, Oklahoma Sooners football team which just oh, lost yeah. <laughs> the fiesta bowl to arizona state and watts is going on and on talking about how ou had turned into a country club and he didn't mention anyone by name but he was like oh this one specific person you know who he was talking about right yeah 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 but hey baby when you're on the territory you can talk about whatever you want <laughs> Exactly. But he was, he really, without mentioning by him by name, he really let Marcus Dupree have it. And pretty soon Marcus Dupree was not going to be Oklahoma's problem anymore. But I, I, like you said, he owns the promotion. He can do whatever he wants. Um, I am on Twitter at John McAdam. Just put in the name, follow the guy who has in his avatar, two guys fighting with a wrestling chair. Uh, Rico, thank you for having, having us uh, doing this with us. Go LSU beat Texas tonight. Yes, yes, yes. Go Tigers. All right. And I want to thank Lou Kippelman for producing this episode for us. And this has been an Arcadian Vanguard, a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols.